Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about multi-use cards. We're talking about cards that can be used for this or that or the other thing. And we're talking to John Meatling from Portal Dragon Games. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk to you. You've got a game that was recently on Kickstarter, did really, really well, a game called Palm Island, and the whole game is multi-use cards. Like, that's just, that is the game. And once I saw it, I was like, I really want to talk to this guy. I feel like he knows a thing or two about this topic. And so, you know, reached out to you, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. But let's just pretend people didn't see your game on Kickstarter. They don't know who Portal Dragon is. They don't know who John is. Tell me your bio. Who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff. All right, so I... um a little bit about me, I guess. Uh, I've been a gamer for a long time. I started off with uh, Magic the Gathering um, and other uh, trading card games like that. I uh, kind of took a hiatus from games in general after it drained my bank account and returned it with uh, family board games. So uh, we got into Settlers of Catan. Uh, Dominion was a natural um, a natural game for me to get after, after coming through Magic and other deck builders like that. Um, but then my collection just grown and grown. Um, I have always been somebody who, um, I don't know, I think it's part of our family. We have an entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, we see something that we want to do and we just run after it. And so um, I was part of a, a video game startup doing uh, graphic design and uh, 3D modeling, sculpting um, for that company. And things were just moving way too slow. I spent 10 years of my life with that company and I really have very little to show for it, no actual product. So um, I, I took all my ideas with me when I left there, and I basically decided to go the board game route because, as a both a designer of games, but I don't I do a little bit of programming enough to make me dangerous, but you know not enough to complete a project on my own. Right. Um, but I do design and I do um, the visual side of things, doing uh, digital art, um, and so it seemed to me like going to, into board games was a great avenue to explore. So uh, my first game that I really worked on was called Zephyr Winds of Change. I did that as a co-design with Aaron Cook, and uh, we worked on that for uh, a couple of years on the side, and I'm still doing games on the side, but I've been uh, recently taking a look more at games that are smaller. That, that one took three years, and it still is like a beast, uh, tons of artwork and tons of cards. And uh, The natural process for me was after getting off of something that was that heavy, um, I had about 30 ideas that were really, really, really light, <laughs> and uh, Palm Island was actually one of those. Uh, when I normally when I go to design, I, um, I I go look at my lists. I have a few different lists that I, I go off of that are either mechanics or themes or or just a spark of an idea, and I, I kind of do these little sprints where I make a game, whether it's good or not, um, in a short period of time. And it used to be, I used to have an hour drive to work every day, so I would. Uh, I would make a game on the way to and from work that I would do be, be like a, a constraint on myself to say, make something or come up with some ideas that will um, start the game in this block of time. And uh, one of the items on that list was a tableless game, a game that would require no table. Um, and so I, I'd been working on that one, like off and on, like trying to get something to work and nothing was really clicking for a while with that one. I had a lot of failures, <laughs> but um, out of those failures came Palm Island. It was a, um, a really nice fit and a very quick design, actually, once it um, made it from kind of from brain to table. Um, and then from there, it, was, it stayed pretty much 90% the same to what got launched on Kickstarter. So, uh, yeah, I have a, I've got a big family. They're going to grow up to be a bunch of playtesters for me as well. I've got uh, seven kids. Wow. Um, so yeah, we uh, we're a foster family. So mm -hmm. five of our kids we actually got recently, which so it's been a quite a change for me. And uh, since I've been into the game design thing too, we have gotten four kids in the last year of the seven. So it, it's been quite a growth for our, our family, but it's been an awesome ride, and um, it has actually uh, inspired me to want to do a little bit more with the gaming industry and 
what games mean for families too, because I feel like it's a huge part of our family and especially in, in bringing new members into our family, there's a lot of that, like, I guess, awkwardness that can, can happen when uh, a new child comes into your home. Um, with our boys, it wasn't really a big deal because um, they were like, oh, hi, you're my new friend. Sweet. Let's go play. Uh, but with our teenagers who came in, um, they were a little bit more awkward. Like, you know, I'm forced to be here. I don't know if I'm, I, I like you or not. And so we're like, well, let's not worry about that. Let's just play a game. And so we had this kind of third party medium that um, made it really nice to make some of those transitions. But I think that covers a little bit about me. <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. I <laughs> uh, just want to unpack a couple of things. You know, what you're saying about playtesters, I've had so many people ask me or, or talk to me about how, you know, they live out in the middle of nowhere. They don't live next to, you know, near a meetup group or a playtesting group and what they should do. And I always tell them, I say, find a good spouse that likes games and marry that playtester. Or in your case, have a bunch more kids and then let, you know, you kind of have a captive audience. It's like, you know, you, you eat dinner in my house, you can play games in my house. And so right. <laughs> that's one way to one way to look at it. But, you know, what you're talking about with the, you know, the family and you, you now have a vested interest in the gaming industry because this is something that your family does. I think that's really cool. I think that's what a lot of people are finding in this, you know, so to speak, renaissance of games is that it gets people off their phones. It gets people to a table where they get to hang out and talk to each other and get to know each other and tell stories and, and laugh and have fun and all that and that's one of the power of games and so thank you for being part of this thank you for for doing what you're doing uh, to bring, bring more people to the table and so let's let's talk a little bit more about palm island give me just like the the brief synopsis you mentioned a little bit about it but let's let's get like a brief uh what is it and that, that's going to lead us into the the topic of the multi-use card so tell me about the the game all right so palm island in its simplest form here is a portable resource management game you basically are controlling a village you have 17 cards is what the core game uses um there are more cards for bonuses and some of the things we added on with uh, some of the stretch goals and things but the core game comes down to just 17 cards that you go through um eight rounds and so you see each card um once each round so you as you kind of shuffle through them or uh, cycle through them um you'll see these cards again eight times throughout the game as you work your way through the game, you're going to be upgrading, manipulating, storing cards. Um, basically, each card has four different sides to it in a way. Sides is probably the wrong word. Um, it has a top, a bottom, and then the back has a top and a bottom. So it has four different states. Depending on how the card is rotated and flipped, that will make different states available at different times. And that allows you to take a 17-card game and make it feel actually like a pretty chunky Euro. It is a quick game. I Normally, I get through games in about eight minutes. And we, we put 15 minutes on the box. Um, it's so I would say it's, you know, it's around that probably 10 to 20 minute game. That's what, what it takes to play. You can play it by yourself. It is designed mainly to be a solo game, but there are variants for you to be able to play cooperatively or competitively. And there's two versions of the competitive mode, both a casual and a speed option for those who are more uh, familiar with the game. But basically what you're doing is you're, you're storing wood or, or fish, and you use those wood or fish or rocks to upgrade other cards, including your wood and fish and rock cards. So you have these logger cards. When you upgrade it, um, it could instead of producing one log, you could upgrade it two times and get it to produce two logs. Uh, your, your boats or canoe houses um, allow you to move from just producing one fish to if you invest another fish in it, then you can produce two fish or a fish and a log. And then if you invest in it again, it will produce two fish in a lot. Um, so then you start getting more resources on um, each card. And so that way, when you're storing your cards, you can hold on to a lot more resource at a time um, as you invest in victory point generating buildings or resource generating buildings, depending on what, how your deck's built, things like that. So I think it kind of covers it. Yeah, and what was so cool is is I was watching a Rado run through of the game. That's my first first saw the game. I didn't see it on Kickstarter. I saw a run through that he did on his his YouTube channel, and I thought, man, this is this is incredible. This is a a pretty solid Euro design in seventeen cards. Like it, it'd be the same kind of game you'd see just sprawled out on a table that you know takes an hour and a half to play, and it's got all these different choices and things you're building this engine and all that but you do it in 17 cards and you don't even need a table that's what's really cool the way the cards sit in your hand and they rotate and they they cycle through it's just a really cool design now did your yeah for those who are, who are not familiar with it you hold the 17 cards in your in your hand and then you would take in order to store a resource i don't know how we're gonna if, i'm gonna try to express this in audio only if you haven't seen it this is how it basically works you take the top uh the top or the second card whichever one you're going to interact with and if you're going to store that resource and that's makes it so it's available to pay into others you turn it 
So it's instead of portrait, it'll be landscape. So you turn it 90 degrees, and then you stick it in the back of your deck, and just the side of the card, which is the top of the card, sticks out of the right side of your deck. And so now you can see I have one wood. And if you were then going to store another resource, that would poke out beneath it. And so you start to see these sticking out of the side of your deck, and they hold their position in the deck too, as when you use them, they just rotate back up um, into their their what the position that they were originally in, and then they hold their position. So as you work your way through the deck, you start to become more familiar with, oh, I know I've got a bunch of resources here, and then I've got um, a temple right after that, and I want to upgrade those resources so those can feed into that temple. So you know that's like in the front of your deck, and so every time you come to the front, you go, oh, I need to save. I need a little bit more rock because I don't have enough rock in the front of the deck, so i got to save it at the end of the round so I can have it at the beginning of the round. And you can make kind of plans ahead as you've been manipulating your village. Yeah, for sure. And now right, you mentioned at the at the beginning that you got into games with Magic the Gathering and all that. Now, I remember, I, that's how I got into games, too, playing a ton of Magic when I was in college, and I remember there were a bunch of multi-use Magic the Gathering cards, you know, where you have the card, and the top does this, the bottom does this, and it's kind of all split into two different cards. Did that have any kind of influence on this game? So, I don't know. This, this I don't think so. Um, now, it's hard to say that in any game design to say exactly where the inspiration came from, yeah. because I'm not, I'm not going to say it came solely for me and I'm the only one who ever had this sort of idea because I've, I've seen cards that have been used different ways, different times. Um, but I, I mean, this really came down to, I needed it to be portable. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, if I, I rotate it, cause I originally was just going to have it be that when it flips over. And then I was like, well, I need more out of each card than just one change. And so I was like, well, I'm not really using the whole card because I had a bunch of different plans for what I could do with the cards and how much information would be on there. Um, and so then it just turned into what I played originally with what would be on revealed with cards that were on top of each other. But I don't know. It quickly moved into using them when they're rotated 180 degrees and then flipped over so that it would have four different states. So like I said, I don't, I'm not, I don't think there's a specific thing, um, but you know, I, I take influence from anywhere I can. So I actually don't even remember that many multi-use cards or any multi-use cards that I can pull specifics out from magic the gathering from my experience. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but those sound really cool. <laughs> yeah, I had a few in, in my, like the you know, the main deck that I used. I had a few in there that uh, you could pay this much and do it this way, or you could pay this much and do this other thing. And so you always had a couple different options on the card based on, you know, what strategy you were trying to take and all that. And it was just a really interesting extra little choice, you know, not nothing complicated, just extra little choice in there just to kind of give you some more more options. And so, all right, let's go. You, you mentioned... Uh, the constraints of like, I guess my question is why, why make a game like this? You mentioned that you wanted to make a tableless game. And so, the, you know, the whole game sits in your hand, but I guess the, the bigger question, why make a game with multi-use cards when, when you don't have to, like what would be, what, if somebody was thinking about this as, you know, for their own gaming ideas or projects or whatever, uh, why would you suggest making a game with cards that do more than one thing on each card? Well, I mean, there could be a lot of reasons. Uh, one, my reason, of course, was because I wanted you to it to be portable. And I could have easily made it that it had double the amount of cards in there, but then you'd be holding more cards in your hand, which really, if, at that point, it wouldn't be that many because then we're talking about 36 cards instead of 17. So it's, that's not a lot. I mean, you can hold a whole deck. You can hold 52 cards. But what I also wanted to have happen was I wanted you to use the same cards again to show your investment. So that it wasn't like, okay, I've got a new set of cards. I've got different cards that I'm seeing. Um, because if you do have 52 cards, how long is that game going to be for me to be able to see the same card again and say, oh, I made that. I influenced that card. Where when you have a board out there, you go, okay, or, or a, tableau, uh, a tableau or something like that that you're, you're manipulating as you're building your engine. You go, I've been making these changes and now these are acting differently because this cube is now in this position as opposed to that position. Um, and so my constraint made that have to happen on the cards. Now, some other reasons I, I think it really ends up bringing down to interesting choice. So having a, a choice feel uh, back to interesting uh, <laughs> to make the player feel clever. You know, you want to have that, have a lot of options open and then have the different avenues have interact very differently. Um, so having the cards act differently on the same card makes you feel even more clever rather than just saying, Oh, I never read that card. You say, no, I use this same thing in a different way than a different player may have. 
Um, actually, one of the games that I've played most recently that has a multi-use cards that feel like that is Gloomhaven. So Gloomhaven, when for those who haven't played it, you have to pick two cards before you start the next round or the next turn. Um, and you pick those two cards. They, both those cards have what is initiative on them, and that kind of defines that. But the bigger thing about it is that you have to pick the top of one and the bottom of, the, of another. And every card has both an advanced use and a basic use. So if I use the top use of either card and it's the basic use, it's just an attack for two damage. Um, if I use the bottom use, it's move for two move. And those are the most basic actions you can take with those. But when you have those two cards, you have two separate types of options. So I have to pick the bottom off of one and the top off the other. So you set yourself up to say, okay, well, I ran into this room up to these guys and I want to have a few options open. So if I swing my sword like this and they're, they react one of two ways, I, I want to be able to have options. So it kind of lets you feel that way in the game to say, I've made this plan, but I have a backup. So I want to do A from card one and B from card two. But if that doesn't work out because the my, my plans were foiled and the skeletons got to go before me and they rushed me... And, then I want to, oh, instead I'm going to run away and then I'm going to um, activate this stealth ability or something like that. And so that gives you this, you're making two plans that will hopefully will come out. So if plan A gets foiled, you don't just feel like, well, the game screwed me over. You say, no, I've got this backup plan and now I can execute that. So to me, it's a, it's a lot about um, allowing the user to make clever decisions. And so that's that's one of the, the things I try to do also with the, the multi-use cards is make them feel invested in in their cards invested in what they're what they've created rather than just well i did this in the beginning and that's gonna allow because i could have made it be that you never go through the deck again and you just have 52 cards and you go all the way through the deck and so what you do in the beginning matters with what you do at the end but one of the biggest things that i was concerned about was uh distribution and too many cards made it really hard to say i can't get back to what i need i could have you know magic that classic mana vein where you have so many people trying to like preset their deck before the shuffle to avoid a mana vein or, or, or build yourself where you won't ha have that kind of screwed by the shuffle yeah. <laughs> uh, event, you know. And so that was another reason for that. But. Yeah, gotcha. And you bring up a great point. Multi-use cards give the players more opportunities to feel smart, more opportunities to plan uh, and, and to kind of do different things to build things. They don't, they don't, they don't say, "Oh, I drew this card. These are the only. This is the only option I have." Oh well, I guess I'll do this because the game has has done this. Now, one of the games I'm thinking about, one of my favorite games with multi-use cards, is actually uh, Lagranha, where you have a card that can be, I think it could be a resource, an order. If you're trying to deliver things, it could be a special ability, or it could be something that you build. And so every card has four different things, and you choose, you know, based on where you put it on your player board, what it is for the rest of the game. And so like if you really like the player the uh, special ability, you can put it there. If you really need some resources, you can slide it on your board over there. And it just gives the player so many different choices even with only, you know, you're looking at two cards, but you have now eight choices uh, of what to do. And so it allows you to kind of plan and do different things uh, long term in the game to set yourself up to win or or not, but at least it's your fault and not the game's fault. Are there any other games that you've seen that use multi-use cards really really well? Um, yeah, there there are. I want to speak a little bit to what you were saying with that because yeah. the the using the cards like that where you you basically have one of three or four different choices to do with that card that actually ends up kind of creating a negative impact in a way that you have to kind of weigh that decision yeah. that you instead of just saying okay I drew a card and you know Candyland I go to blue or something you know the game plays you at that point but giving the player the the ability to make the decision to say okay, I really need this resource, but that building would be amazing. And so I want, so now I have a tough decision to make, um, and that makes you feel more invested in the game rather than just saying, well, I'll just do the obvious choice. Then you really don't feel as invested that you've created this whole story arc yeah. that you've created, you know, that I, at the one time I made that decision to, to, to not get the resources I needed for plan this other plan so I could get that building and then that building ended up panning out for me in the end and that's what won me the game. You know, you want those kind of moments in the game where the, the player feels like um, that event changed their whole outlook or changed the, the whole, their chances of winning and stuff like that. So yeah, that, that's, that's really good for that um, as well. To, to play into that. Uh, another one I'm thinking of is uh, Steampunk Rally. 
so during the draft mode of that, you can choose whether you want a card to give you uh, energy or that you're going to use the part um, or use the ability on the card. So that one, I think, has three options on it, or is it two? I forget. It's been a while since I played that one. But very, very similar to, to what you were explaining about the multi-use um, cards, and you basically have choices on how to use those cards. And if you choose one, that makes it so you can't utilize the others, um, which I really like that that feeling and, and saying, oh, man, I don't know which way is the right way to go, which, of course, it all depends on your target market as well because there's certain games you don't want that in there. You don't want that party game to have you know, that uh, analysis paralysis going on, that it's going to just kill the momentum of the game. You want uh, to give people the run. And I liked it in that one, too, that that, that was a, in a draft mode, that you made those choices all simultaneous. So I didn't have to wait for another player yeah. to make their decision. We're all making those decisions at once. Now, of course, inevitably, there's going to be somebody who takes longer, but it's not nearly as bad because I've taken my turn during that. So that was definitely a clever use of that and utilizing the drafting uh, the simultaneous turns mechanics as well to to heighten that. Um, so that was that was really cool. Yeah, definitely. I think that's something to really think about if you have multi-use cards, especially if you give players a lot at a time, is to realize the downtime. It's gonna it potentially creates, and how can you reduce that if you can allow players to make the the same choices at the same time? So you're not just waiting on one person. You're you're, you're kind of doing it all simultaneously. I think that's a, a way to go. Another game I love is San Juan, and this kind of shows how cards can be used in multiple ways. Not just because what's on the card, but where you put the card. So if, if you know, listeners, you're not familiar with that game, you have a hand of cards in your hand. A hand of cards in your hand, obviously. You have the cards in your hand, and, and they're all buildings. But then you, you can uh, take a card out of your hand. You basically discard it to in front of you, and where you put it determines what it is. So if you put it on certain locations, it becomes a resource. If you put it on other locations, it, it becomes uh, basically you can, you can discard it as currency to build other things. And so the cards themselves don't have a bunch of a text or a bunch of abilities or anything like that. It's just the way you use it or where you put it on the table, on the board, so to speak, that it changes its use. And so, uh, John, have you played Have you played San Juan? I have not. Yeah, check that one out. That might be one that can kind of help you as you kind of make more of these really cool multi, multi-use sure. card uh, games. But any other games you've, you've played, you're like, yeah, that's a really cool way to do that. Yeah, there, there's been a, a few recently that – I've been mostly every everyone I'm thinking of are prototypes, and so I'm not sure how much I um, I can talk about <laughs> right. them. Um, not my own prototypes, but um, but some other people's. I mean, there was one. And I'll just talk in general. Yeah. Uh, where it was it was a both a building and a spelling game. So you had these letters you were collecting, and you utilize the letters both become a word that you make um, in order to uh, allow you to do a certain amount of actions in your turn. So the longer you could spell a word, the more actions you could take. And then those tiles that you use for the letters actually became stuff that you built with. And so you'd have to both go, well, I want to use this letter E because it's going to become a building or, or something like that, or it's going to become a resource or something. Um, and so you, so you have to be very particular about what you're doing, both in how you're crafting the word and how, then how that word will convert into um, use later in the game. And so that was a really cool use of, of the cards that way. I mean, I've always seen you know multi-use cards that cards end up being both an ability and then they also end up being like your health so your hand of cards both becomes that when you take damage you have to discard a card which is you know it's a penalty that you have to take that you're discarding a card but it is a way of using multiple use cards and you would say you could get rid of these cards or that that to to make the make you either hurt or i guess allow yeah so i mean there's a lot of things i mean we played what dragonwood that was doing that with the kids the other day and so, yeah, there's lots of ways you can do it. And what you were mentioning, too, is it's not limited to cards, but tiles as well. Yeah. And there's been plenty of games that, you know, you have tiles that you're, you're utilizing. Then when you flip it over, it becomes different. Or where you use it and how you use it makes all, all the difference. Yeah, and ultimately, I think it comes down to giving, giving players choices. And I think that's what uh, games are. I had a, there's a young man here uh, at the school, and, and he's gotten into game design. And so he heard that I do game design stuff, apparently. And so he came over, and, and we were talking about uh, some different ideas he had. And all his stuff right now, is, it's roll and move. It's, it's variations on Uno or variations on War. You know, like the very basic stuff. This, the same stuff most designers, they, they kind of start off with. And he, he was just kind of asking me in general, like, how do you make good games? And I said, well, it's all about choice. And giving your players choices so they don't feel like the game's just playing them. It's not just random luck that they have options. And because the more uh, choices you can give a player, the more actual, like, useful choices, not just 
red or green, does it matter? Not really. Not arbitrary choices, but real choices. Right. The the deeper a game can be, and, and more people tend to enjoy. It. And I think that's just what um, these these cards do. Now, what are some of the challenges in making one of these games? Because I can see there's with so much going on, so many things on one card. What are the challenges you've run into with your own games? Yeah. So using the multi-use cards definitely brings in a lot of balance issues yeah. that you you can't as easily math it out in, in a way, and it takes a lot more, I guess, experience to figure out when you have a card that's going to be converted into something else, um, especially if you're going to be using that it could be used one of three ways, well, you have to say, okay, is the me using the resource of this card equal to me using this card as a building? You know, because if it isn't, then there is no choice there. Then you should always take building X, because when building X comes up, I'm always going to take it because it is more profitable than any of the other choices there. So you want to be very careful about that, that um, when you're looking at one card that could be used from multiple options in, in that way, you definitely want to make sure that they're they're equal or at least that um, there's not going to be a single choice. Because if there's a single choice, there is no choice. Right. So you want that to always be available for players. Now, in Palm Island, it uses it a little bit differently in the fact that I'm utilizing one card to transform into a different form of the same card. So the card, when you invest in it, it flips over or it rotates, and then that card, when you go to use it again, will be improved. And so with that, that that was a very, that was something I ne really never dealt with before. And so it was kind of interesting, and I was actually astounded at how well everything just clicked together. Um, I mean, I did end up basically, I. I ignored the card side of it at first, and I basically looked at, well, if it was on a board and I was just moving cubes up a track, what would be beneficial here? And, and, and saying, um, since there is only 17 cards, you get through them pretty quick, and so the order they're used in um, didn't affect it too profoundly. But, yeah, as soon as I, I kind of, like, mathed out the value of each path or the value of each decision, it all kind of stayed the same, and I was really surprised. I, I used a... Um, print and play playtesting online, and I had um, around 400 people. I ended up getting about 1,000 playtest wow. um, reports, which was a lot of data to go through. Yeah. But I was really surprised how little the game changed. <laughs> so from me taking it before, from the really rough prototype, which then included also the Excel spreadsheet that kind of mapped out what everything I felt their values were, um, really there was only one change there. I, I just ditched a card, a single card, um, that I was just causing issues, and I just removed it from the game. The game was originally 18 cards, now it's 17, and it that solved like all of the issues that were happening in the game. Um, and then from the playtesting, I really all I did was I had to adjust one card's costs, and that was the only change that happened to the core game. I added feats, I added. Um, which are like achievements you can earn as you play. Um, and I, I fleshed out the multiplayer a little bit more, but I was really surprised how little iteration this game needed, which most of my games, like I go through tons of iterations and I was really worried about this one. I was like, it's, it's, it's kind of concerns me that I don't have as many iterations, yeah. uh, but through the play testing that really kind of proved that it, it it was just an idea that clicked really well. So yeah, sometimes that happens. I think uh, was it Vlado Vlado Shavado that did code names. Yes. Yeah. I spoke I spoke to with him at uh, spoke no spoke. I spoke with him uh, at uh, Gen Con. It was two years ago talking about code names, um, and he was like, "Yeah, he felt the same way." Where he's like, "Yeah, it was kind of a dumb idea," and it just kind of went together. It was like if I didn't make it, somebody else was going to make it because yeah. it was just inevitable with this, how he felt is that it was so simple that it just... And he spends so much time on these other humongous games right. like Mage Knight and stuff, and they're so in-depth and have so much going on that he even feels like Codenames is kind of like... It was silly to yeah. him how, how easy it was to make, you know? Well, it was almost like cheating. And, and, you know, what I heard, he he made the game and he thought, there's no way it's this simple. Like, there's no way the game could be already good. And so it took, right. he, like, spent six months trying to break it, trying to figure out, like, surely this doesn't work, right? And it just right. never broke. Like, it just kept working. And now, you know, a bazillion games and variations later, uh, it's just a, an incredible game. So every now and then, that kind of stuff just works out. Now, tell me, yeah. tell me about the one card that you got rid of. What was the problem? Like, what was it doing that kind of messed everything up? Uh, so that was a card that was supposed to give a different sort of uh, 
path to victory. Um, I kind of resurrected it in the feat in a way, and it was supposed to be that based on what you were upgrading other cards to, it would give you points related to those, but it was just its cost and it, its value of what it returned just never never worked out right. And so it ended up being that it would cost too much to invest or too little to invest and you get too much of a return out of it. Um, and I didn't want to get into any sort of fractional values or, or do too much math to say, well, for every three of these cards you have, you'll get one point. Or I, I didn't want too much of that because right now the game was you just look at the cards. The cards have on the top left the victory point number, and you just go through and count them, and that's how you end the game. And so um, I didn't want it to be all this extra weird math. Now, I did resurrect some of that with the, the feats that when you earn those, you can invest in them and, get, and, and then get those, but it was just not working as part of the core deck, and so that was some of the issues it was having. Uh, it was really just it was just balance issues. But. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now, were there any other challenges that you ran into, or with the playtesting that that playtesters kind of brought up? And you're like, wow, I never thought about that. Anything like that? So the biggest challenge for Palm Island was um, actually the the physical mechanics of the game. Hmm. Um, explaining that was kind of funny because most of the time, it, you when you're dealing with a rule book, it, it is astounding to me how the simplest things are are the things that get messed up the most. Right. So when we say, in a, in a game, we say, draw cards until you have a hand of five cards. We, we would say that, and everyone would know what we're talking about, right? Yep. But some people would be like, well, let me get a piece of paper so I can draw those cards and... <laughs> I'm going to draw what they nice look like. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, so there's a yeah. lot of terms and there's a lot of things that we already have, a lot of preconceptions that we lean on right. as rule book writers and so we if when you say a hand of cards so you just have your we don't tell them how how am i supposed to hold these hands of cards can i lay them out on, a, on can i put them in this little holder that i have since my hands are too small there's a lot of things people do that they they kind of i guess house rule it in a way so my kids if if it's a game that doesn't matter i say go ahead open hand lay them on the table we have these little card holders and, they, and none of that matters to the game but we all understand that having a hand of cards basically just means I have a set of secret information that is a number of cards that I can use myself. And so with a deck of cards that you're holding in your hand and you are able to um, interact with the top or the bottom and you're shuffling, like moving cards from the front to the back and moving them sideways out to the side and the way you hold them was actually the hardest thing to explain to people. And so I had the most often complaints I had was that it was, it was fiddly um, or that their hands were too small, so they wanted the cards to be smaller, or their hands were too big, so they wanted the cards to be bigger. They said, oh, no, the cards should be longer. No, the cards should be shorter. So everybody had a different opinion about what the cards should end up being. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the right dimensions for the cards. Um, it ended up being that the poker-sized cards worked the best. And this was a little bit into product design as opposed to um, game design, which, I mean, they're, they're definitely very, very close. But I did want a game that I didn't have to make completely custom cards because that would add a lot of cost to the game. And as as a, a game that's so so light, I wanted it to be also very cheap. Yeah. Because if I had to charge a, a lot for the game, then that's a big barrier to entry for a lot of people. And so I didn't want to have that either. So with that, it ended up being explaining how to hold the cards, how to get the card to go in, and what you're supposed to do with your hand. Because I I made diagrams and I made playtest vi or playthrough videos showing people how I hold the cards. And every time I would physically play test it with someone in person, I would I would sit back and go, I, I wouldn't hold the cards like that. But it's also about how natural they would hold the cards. And so I ended up kind of taking a step back from forcing people to hold the cards a specific way to just explaining the game and letting them figure out how to hold the cards. Because I noticed when I over-explained how to do the physical mechanics of it, Though it is new and it is different, when I over-explained it, they felt like it was too rigid and that since they had to align with that, those rigid rules of that hold one card in your right hand and your deck in your left hand, it ended up being they, – they were like, no, I'm left-handed, so I want to do it the opposite. Well, it doesn't matter if you're left-handed or right-handed, but it ended up causing more barriers to get people into the game and to experience the game that, that those sort of – little little things that weren't a big deal or should never be a big deal that you know it's equivalent to i want to sit on the north side of the table when i play 
Catan, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you sit. But some players get hung up on that, you know. And so if you were to say, so force people where they sit, then they would probably, it would damage their experience of the game. So in, in what I came to with the rules was basically talking about the first and the second card and whether or not if you want to draw that card into your hand or not and separate it from the deck is completely up to you. If you want to fan it out, if you want to slide it down, that's completely up to you because I'm talking about the first card and the second card of the deck. So when you go to discard, you can only discard the first card of the deck. It doesn't matter if it's in your right hand. It doesn't matter if it's in your left hand. It doesn't matter if you fan it out. It's just the first card of the deck. So that seemed to solve a lot of the issues with that. Um, but that was one of the biggest things I had to deal with was the physical mechanics of it because it was kind of new territory um, to deal with because I have not I know there are other games that do in-hand shuffling, but they're not very common. So when dealing with the playtesters and eventually customers, it's, since it's not so common, you still have to address those sorts of issues. Yeah, and I think it's super important to realize which rules in your game need to be rigid. Like, if you don't do this rule right, the game's not going to work. It's not going to be balanced. It's, it's going to be broken, whatever. Compared to which rules are really just guidelines. Hey, this is kind of how you could do it. Here's how I do it. Just do it whatever feels comfortable, feels natural, because whatever way you do it, it's not going to change the game. It's just right. whatever you feel good about. And that's that's important to distinguish when you're writing rules and to not get hung up on, no, you have to do it this way, if it really doesn't matter. I think it's a great point. All right, so we've mentioned a lot of advantages so far with multi-use cards. Any other things that you would cite as an advantage, just a, a good reason to make games that have these kinds of cards or make a game that's only these kinds of cards like you have? Yeah, so one of the advantages I, I would see is multi-use cards reduce component quantity. So then if you have multi-use tiles, multi-use cards, you're, you're talking about cutting your component count in almost half. So, well, I mean, it, of course, depends on how you're designing it and what's happening with your mechanics. But if I was to do the same game here, I could it could have cost a lot more yeah. um, to do it with a board and with cubes and things like that. And that's definitely always something you want to keep in your mind, even though that's something, yes, the publisher is going to be dealing with more. The publisher also doesn't want to have to redesign the whole game in order to make it worth them printing. So if you have some sort of, uh, rigid, I need to have this many dice in the game, well, that's going to be a lot harder for some publishers to say, yeah, we can make that game, because they're going to see how much can I sell this game for, how many components are in it, you know, and so there is a lot going on when we're designing the games. So we're not just designing a game, we are designing, well, most people, most people are designing a product, and of course, if you're designing a game that's just for you and your family and everything, that's awesome. That's fun, go ahead, but if you're designing it to pitch to publishers, you definitely want to keep componentry in mind. And so if you can do something clever with the components, it's not only um, going to save money, but it also makes it more of an interesting, like that could be the hook to the game, to say, oh, this is what sets it apart, is it utilizes things in a different way and makes you feel clever in a whole new way. Yeah, for sure. And this is something Jamie Stegmaier talks a lot about with having a game or making sure a game has a must-have component, right? That there's something in that game that isn't in any other games that when, when people walk by, they see it on the table, they go, oh, what is, what is this? I've never seen this before. And so when people walk by your game, they see somebody there and they've got the entire game is literally in their hands and the way the cards are fanned out and all that. And it's like, what? what how does this game work? I've never seen a game do this in this <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, we've been uh, talking about that at trade shows. What we should do is bring a, a Lazy Boy or yeah. a recliner and then have <laughs> people play test the game or, or demo the game in the recliner and that would be everyone would be like what right. <laughs> what's happening here um, and that's yeah definitely has a, a visual hook to it but I know what you mean too because I see um, I'll see games that with a similar theme which is it's wrong to to say oh I've seen that theme before so I don't want to play that game because I have a game that already fills that when it could be a completely different game it's right. just interesting what happens to us in our minds uh, when we see something that we've seen before. So seeing something new and different is what normally gets people to pay attention for the full pitch of a game. Yeah, for sure. Now, let's go into playtesting. You mentioned a moment ago that you had like 400 playtesters. How in the world did you find 400 people to playtest your game? What did that process look like of just finding those people? So I've had a little bit of an issue with playtesters before because my game, well, really the Zephyr Winds of Change was my bigger game, um, and I it took so long to work on that one because it, the game was two to four hours long, and it had a lot of like setup time and a lot of bits and pieces, so I couldn't send prototypes all over the, the planet. It would cost me way too much money. I did have it on tabletop simulator, things like that, but it would just take too long. So what I did for this one, I basically went to... 
very with some very targeting targeted marketing. Um, I went to print and play, uh, print and play uh, Facebook group and a solo gaming playtest group, and I posted a video that was just a loop of me going through three of the cards in the deck, and I set it up to be that it would repeat. So you just it looks like you just never stop going through the deck, which right. is really what happens in the game. Um, so it was a little like five second clip of me utilizing these cards, and then I, I, I basically gave the pitch saying, this is a game I'm working on, I'm looking for playtesters, and I sent them to a sign-up form, and I got, um, I actually ended up getting around 700 responses, and most of them didn't end up actually end up doing it for whatever reason, but yeah, it was really just the hook, that visual hook of going, what, a game I can play anywhere, um, a game I'm just playing in my hand, and it just has that different, oh, I'm, I'm moving these cards in a whole, whole different way. Um, that made people very interested in. Now, another challenge to the playtesting with this game was that doing most playtests and prototypes have sleeved cards because it's so much easier yeah. to make your prototypes with um, sleeves, of course, but this game with sleeves is not great because if you have paper and say you throw, you know, like a, a lands card in there for magic to, to give it rigidity, uh, rigidity <laughs> and then you put the paper on the either, either side, it ends up still, if, unless you have the very... Um, the very well sized, uh, what are these called? Perfect fit sleeves. Yeah, I have something. Uh, the perfect fit sleeves. Then it the sleeves move so much that manipulating the cards by rotating them in the deck while holding the deck, it it was very annoying to deal with. And so I was kind of worried about that, but I didn't have too many complaints because, of course, playtesters should understand that this is not the final product. Right. But yeah, it really came down to having a really good visual hook to it. Uh, I printed out the, the cards through um, Game Crafter and then uh, was using those to pitch the game. Um, I also have, I do all my own artwork too, and uh, so I had some better visuals with it, which I think was a, a way to get a lot more people in. The playtester who can enjoy the game when it's all handwritten is that's a rare person. And so, I, I mean, I need to learn to do that more is to keep it in that because I'm normally a perfectionist and I, I take it too far too fast and I have so many games that I've thrown away and then I've thrown away hours and hours of artwork too and that's a big mistake. I shouldn't do that. Um, but in this instance, because I was already moving, I already had the Kickstarter planned. I already And so I was looking for a larger group of playtesters to really beat this thing to death. So having the, those visuals in there made a really big difference. Uh, and I really think it was just that it filled such a unique niche, where if I would have had um, any of the other three games I have lined up next, I think that I'm going to have a harder time pulling people in to be playtesters for those. Yeah, well, hopefully you'll get some repeats, though, people that have played your games before and go, man, I really like this guy's games, or at least that one, and so I'll play, yeah, I'll play test the next one. And so I think that's something else to, to think about for other people that are designing games. Maybe think a little bit smaller at first to make some smaller games first, build up a, a base, build up a community, build up people who you can engage with, and then maybe start tackling some deeper, or bigger, heavier, more complex games. Yeah, uh, and that, that relationship is very important, too. Yeah. I've noticed that there's been a lot of people who already come to me like that, saying, oh, man, definitely keep me in in the loop for the next game you're going to be playtesting because of uh, the amount of interaction and response I've had to the playtesters. And it isn't a big investment, but they're doing a lot of work for you. So Yeah, definitely. Uh, you definitely need to have a lot of respect for that as well. Yeah, for sure. And now, how did you track all the data? Did you use Google Forms or whatever? Like, what did you do to track all their responses? I did use Google Forms. Um, so that, that pumped right into an Excel spreadsheet um, that I had separated into the, the fields. That way I could end up calculating average scores, average times, things of that nature. Uh, the biggest thing that I didn't like about Google Forms was being able to quickly respond back to them. Yeah. So I'm exploring like options on how I want to do that in the future because I had to go look up their, like I used the player ID, which the player ID was just their, um, the beginning of their email address, uh, which I guess I could have used their whole email address, but I didn't want to have to have, yeah. Anyways, uh, so there's definitely things I'm going to do differently, and I'm, and I'm exploring that a little bit. But that was really nice, but, and it was very quick and free. So that was that was great, and I definitely would, would suggest that to anybody who's looking to do something like that. Yeah. Now, when you were looking at the balance, like how to balance these multi-use cards through the feedback, what were the questions you were asking on that form, you know, trying to get that data? Okay, so for the most part, um, I, I started off 
by explaining the purpose of a playtest, which I think is one of the biggest ingredients to a successful playtest, yeah. is informing your playtesters what feedback you want. <laughs> uh, because a lot of times I think we plop our, play, our, our game down and we would just want them to say how much, you know, how amazing this is and, and you're the best designer I've ever seen, things like that, um, which really you, you should be targeting a little bit more. I mean, someone told me a long time ago that um, if you target everybody or in this case target everything, you're targeting nothing. Right. So, you know, you, you if you want specific feedback, you need to be asking for it. You need to say, OK, well, the game is working on these ends and that. Uh, but I'm really looking at the bonuses that, that I want to make sure that balance is there. And that'll make people pay more attention to that specific side of the game. And if they find errors elsewhere, they want to report those too. So they're going to give that data to you. So you don't have to worry too much about that. But yeah, so I started off, first of all, giving them the scope of the game, giving them my intended audience, the intended playtimes, um, things like that, that I really wanted to, them to go into it well-informed of my intentions for the game. Because a lot of times, especially in completely blind playtests, a lot of times people will try to assimilate that game to become their game, right. which it definitely is a dangerous type of playtester. Um, not that they can't give good feedback, but a lot of times it makes it harder to weigh the quality of that feedback because they're trying to change your game as opposed to make it be the game you want it to be. And that's something, of course, I always try to do as a playtester is to understand the designer and what the designer's intentions behind. And then my suggestions should help that designer achieve his or her goals. Anyways, uh, the next thing I did with the, the questions, um, I started off with some basic questions about the game length, the points, uh, what, what were they what was positive about this experience, what was negative about the experience, and then what I have, I had, uh, I forget, but it was basically just some a few general questions after that. So I wasn't, I, I did a lot of it up front of what we're trying to go for, um, and at that point, and then I had another round of playtesting that I used the same form again, that I, I did in the email again, told them what it is I'm looking for to test out the feats and uh, things of that nature. Um, so I did a lot on the front end rather than the questions themselves. But through the through the positive and the negative, um, that did end up helping me uh, qualify what the value was. Because uh, a lot of times people will only give negative feedback. But to me, I always want to chase the fun yeah. of a game. So I do want to know what people enjoyed. And normally you can in, – in person, I don't ask that question normally because you can tell. If you're watching people, you can tell what they enjoyed, what they – what they talk about is normally what they enjoy, um, or a lot of times what negative feedback they gave. That's the part they want to enjoy, you know. Um, and so, you, if you can approve that, that's what they would enjoy. With that. But um, yeah, yeah, I think those are really great points. I think it's so important to realize that playtesting your game is not the same as just playing your game. That those are very different things. And how playtesting, you should you should playtest on purpose. You should go into it with an idea of like what you're trying to look for, what you're trying to accomplish, and just take a, a more scientific approach to things. If you think about how scientists ex approach experiments, they come in with a hypothesis. And so if you're coming into a playtest, you need to be thinking, okay, I believe my game is a little bit too long, and so I'm going to watch and see if that's the case. I'm going to watch and see if there's some ways that I can speed that up, I can reduce the downtime, whatever. But you go into it with a mindset of, what are we going to figure out this time? And then you start making changes. Not just sit down and play it and go, hey, was it fun? Yes. Okay, cool. Now, you know, Let's go do something else. That's, yeah, that's a very yeah, different that's thing. That's the worst kind of feedback you can get, which is, which is funny because it's like it's what you want to hear. Right. That, that was fun. But the worst kind of feedback you can get is that. And that's, that's why I think a lot of people have been offended by the whole – we've had some bigger designers or reviewers who have said stuff like, Stop playtesting with your family. Stop playtesting with your mom and stuff, which there's nothing wrong with that. But it all depends on what type of feedback you're getting. Right. That Are they just patting you on the back? Are they saying, wow, you spent a lot of time on this and I need to be nice? I mean, it's not fun to play with rude playtesters, <laughs> uh, but they do end up normally giving the some of the best feedback um, if they're, you know, don't. Well, I don't know, because uh, you definitely want people to be pleasant sure. um, that you don't want to, you know, but um, you also want them to be honest. And that's that's normally hard to find uh, to cultivate a good group of playtesters that you can play with on a regular basis. Um, but with playtesters who either are trying to be nice to you or that you don't know the quality of the playtest, like say you just went to uh, some board game night at the local board game cafe or store and you just pulled some random people into it 
Um, that is when you can you can help get a more valuable play tester out of random people if you give them specific criteria to be looking for. Because then they feel like they're answering your question, not attacking your creation. Right, definitely. And that, it's honestly a little more in line with reality, right? It, it's going to be random people playing your game once it's on a store shelf or you know, once they – it's over at their friend's house. They sit down for a game night and they just start playing. That, that's more in line with those kinds of people. So you might get more of the feedback that you really need. Now, John, man, this has been awesome. Any other like closing thoughts, any advice you would give people who are working on a game or thinking about a game with multi-use cards? So, yeah, whether you're working with multi-use cards or, or anything you're designing, I mean, really it comes down to get it to the table. Yeah. Try it out. Get it physically tested. You know, there's a lot of times I, I spend too long in my mind um, or that I'll, like like I said before, getting graphics all prepared and stuff. But, no, it, let it be crude. Let it prove itself on the table and get people to play it um, or, or even, you know, do it solo or whatever you can do, which that was definitely a nice thing with Palm Island that it was a solo game. So I was able to have a good play tester all the time, which was myself. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, it's just uh, get it done. <laughs> Awesome. Well, John, man, really appreciate your time. Uh, we're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about portable games. We're going to talk, going to talk about games that you can kind of carry in your pocket and then uh, play while you're in line at the movies or sitting in the Lazy Boy or, or whatever it is. I want to hear John's thoughts on that. But, man, yeah, really appreciate your time. Good luck with Palm Island. When is it, uh, when is it scheduled to, to be available? So uh, right now it is available for pre-order through okay. our backer kit system. So if you go to Kickstarter and look for uh, Palm Island, you can find it there. But um, we're looking for it's going to actually be delivered um, in June is when it's going to be available. Excellent. That's actually a really quick turnaround. Another good thing about just having a game with cards and not having to do all the uh, the extra stuff. Well, cool, yeah. man. Uh, good luck with that and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?